listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Mark. It's a privilege to be with you guys. I'm glad to know that uh, I didn't scare you off last week. I fully expected there would be like four people here this morning. Um, and I, I know how it is when the JV team is in town. I mean, the varsity's now sitting in the front row, but uh, I mean, you know, the JV's here. But I'm really am glad that uh, you guys are here this morning. I'm delighted to share with you um, our second part in the series about uh, faith and fear. Now, as I mentioned last week, and uh, will continue to emphasize to us over the next uh, two sermons, um, we're going to be focusing on the topic of faith and fear. Last week, we looked at the story in Mark chapter 4 and uh, Jesus calming the storm. And as you remember, we observed that fear is not a bad thing. Um, we wanted to make sure that we emphasize that. In fact, God has designed us as creatures to be fearful. We fear, we are designed to fear the creator rather than the creation. And as such, it only really gives us one object for our faith when we are afraid, and that is God himself. So as an add-on from last week, this week, what I'd like for us to consider is this question. What happens when we allow ourselves to be afraid of created things rather than the creator? Or... Uh, if I can put it more directly, what happens when we are more afraid of what we see than what we believe? What happens when we're more afraid of what people will say and do than what God has already said and done? Or even more directly, what happens when we are so afraid that we forget about God entirely? Now, I'll be the first one to admit that, unfortunately, I think I know the answers to some of these questions from experience. And maybe some of you here do as well, but in either case, I think it'll be worth our time this morning to look at the answer to these questions in hopes that we do not continue um, to misplace our faith when we are afraid. So, where would you go to look up uh, answers to questions like these? The book of Numbers, right? The book of Numbers. I knew that's what you were thinking. I can't believe you guys guessed that. The book of Numbers. We're going to look at chapter 13 and 14 today in the book of Numbers. It's in the front of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. There is where you'll find our text for this morning. So if you turn to Numbers 13 there, um, I'm actually going to read a verse from Deuteronomy first, but if you guys can just be there in Numbers, that'll be great. Now, Numbers 13 and 14 tell the story of the 12 spies that were sent out to spy out the promised land. You guys remember that from your Sunday school classes? Remember your felt boards back when you were little? Remember the 12 spies that were going out? Okay, we got the picture, good. Um, the story happens right about a year after the nation of Israel had come out of Egypt in the Exodus. And in that first year, everything that had happened to the nation of Israel was amazing. I mean, they... They had, they had come out of Egypt, which was an amazing feat in and of itself. They'd heard from God at Mount Sinai. They'd begun following the pillar of smoke that rested in the tabernacle, all of these things. And as the nation of Israel drew closer to the southern edge of the promised land, Moses assembled the people, and he said to them, and this is in Deuteronomy 1, he said to them, Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This is all the instruction that the people of Israel should have required at this point in time. However, 
as if a scouting report would help them more than the presence of the living God. I'm not sure. But the people ask Moses if they can send out men to explore the land and gather intelligence about it before they proceed to take possession of it. God is generous to the people, and that's what brings us to Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, where it says in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men out to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief or a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the people Israel. So Moses does as the Lord commands and selects 12 leaders. And just to correct your Sunday school felt board things, we really should call them leaders instead of spies. Okay? Um, spies makes them, that just doesn't help us very much. They are leaders. Okay? They've been elders of each of the tribes. Okay? One from each tribe. And then if you look down in verse 17, Moses gives the spies some additional instructions. He says to them, Go up into the Negev, which is the southern portion of the land of Israel. Go up into the hill country, the mountains of Judea, where Jerusalem is located, and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring back some of the fruit of the land. Moses asks the 12 leaders to do three things. Number one, bring back a scouting report. Number two, bring back some of the fruit of the land. And number three, to be of good courage. Moses gives them these instructions not because he needs the intel. He trusts that God will make it possible for them to possess the land. Moses doesn't doubt that God will make it possible for them to possess it. He doesn't need the scouting report. The intel will rather serve as a testimony to God's greatness and faithfulness to keep his promise, which is exactly why they should be of good courage and bring back some appetizers while they're at it. So they go, and they travel this massive region. They go from the south of Israel all the way north into what is modern-day Syria and even beyond, and it took them 40 days to make this circuitous route that they take um, through this land And when they return home, they come and they debrief Moses on what they found. And in verse 27, they tell Moses this. We came to the land which he sent to us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are very strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And the leaders go on to describe their foes and other seemingly inevitable pitfalls in the land They conclude by saying they don't believe it can be taken. They are afraid that they cannot defeat the people who live there. That's just too much like life, isn't it? Yeah, I got this great new opportunity, but there's there's this or that. Or, oh, I'm really excited about what's going to happen next. Oh, but, but. And with my forge students, oftentimes I'll tell them, you can say whatever you want about your circumstances. You can, you can evaluate them in any way that you want to, as long as you end that evaluation with the truth of what God tells you about who he is and who you are in light of who he is. Because if you don't do that, you end up starting to talk like these spies who are like, yeah, I mean, the land's great, but 
I mean, I don't think we can take it. They forget the truth of what God has promised them. Look in verse 31. This is the most important exchange in the whole story. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. Let's go. We are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him and said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now, I want to give the leaders of the tribes of Israel the benefit of the doubt here, but at the same time, it's very hard to imagine that after what has just happened over the past year to these people, what's happened in the past year, I mean, you remember the 10 plagues? Remember how God ransomed them from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? He parted the Red Sea. He defeated the most powerful nation in the world. And these men and women got to see all of that happen firsthand. But the leaders, the high ups of the tribes, they go through the land and they see it and they say, no, can't do it. Can't be possible. How is it that they would be so hard pressed to believe that the same God who delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians would not also give them the land that he promised that he would give them? God's presence doesn't even seem to be an afterthought for them, except for Caleb and Joshua. Now, to make matters worse, chapter 14 continues. You know, what happens when leaders speak? People listen, and they trust their leaders. And look what happens when 10 leaders say, we can't do this. Watch this. Verse 1, the people panic. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, they haven't even faced an army yet. They haven't even tried to possess the land, and they are ready to abandon ship, disavow their God, and run back to the country that they had prayed so earnestly to be delivered from. The fear of their circumstances is greater than their fear of the Lord. And that's just like fear, isn't it? Fear does that to us. When we're afraid, it makes us do such silly things, and they seem so rational to us at the time, but they're faithless, misguided, even desperate. In fact, as soon as they stop fearing the Lord, they lose their faith in him as well. And what do they do? They start looking for another Lord, another leader, another Savior. And what about the response of those who actually do still fear the Lord in this situation? There aren't many of them. Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. They remembered what happened at the base of Mount Sinai when the people decided that their God and their leader had abandoned them. Remember what happened? Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days. Didn't come back. Make us another God. Craft us one out of gold. And so they made a graven image. Remember? That was less than a year ago. 
from this story. And the discipline from that incident was severe. So Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before the people, and they beg of them. They speak to them earnestly. Look in verse 7. The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land to give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They remind the people of what they should have already known. We should fear the one who created and commands the people who live in the land that the Lord has given us. We have nothing to fear except him alone. In fact, if you look at this, it says they're reminding the people that fearing the people of the land is actually an act of rebellion against God. What's the response of the people? this godly counsel that they get from Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua? Get some rocks! Let's stone them! Get out of here and go back to Egypt. Let's overthrow our leadership and get out of here. Just like fear, isn't it? Fear does that to us. Even when someone speaks truth to us, if we've misplaced our fear in something that's not God, we'll be so overcome with anxiety We won't even recognize the truth that can set us free from it. We we actually, (laughs) this is so strange, we actually feel safer going where our fear wants us to go. Now, the remainder of chapter 14 is the story of how Moses' fear of the Lord causes him to intervene on behalf of the people before an angry God. God wants to destroy the people at this point and start over. But Moses is pleased, persuade God to pardon their iniquity. But God's pardon is not without discipline. Because of their faithlessness and their disobedience, God tells that generation of Israelites that they will wander for 40 years in that wilderness and die there. A year for every day that they spied out the land, never seeing what was promised to them. And instead, Joshua and Caleb would be the leaders for the next generation, and they would be the ones to go in and possess the land. God is still keeping his promise to the nation, just not the generation. The only people who die right away are the ten leaders that said that it couldn't be done. They are overcome with a plague. So, as our text this morning, and as we're looking at the relationship between faith and fear, I think that this story illustrates how powerful misplaced fear can be. We watch this progression happen with the people of Israel and the leaders of the congregation throughout the story. And that progression are the three principles that I want us to learn this morning. Number one, misplaced fear leads to misplaced faith. And then misplaced faith leads to misplaced worship. And then number three, misplaced worship leads to a misplaced life. So if you'll give me just a few minutes, I'd like to talk about each of these briefly. First, misplaced fear leads to misplaced faith. Do you have a pocket definition for what fear is? Can you, can you describe what it is? The definition I like to use is that fear is the emotional response to circumstances that we perceive that we cannot control and that will do us harm. That's kind of what I think of when I think of fear. For example, 
if, you know, a cockroach were to come through the door back there, I doubt that many of you would jump out of your seats going, ah, run for your lives, it's a cockroach, ah! I doubt that would happen. At least I, I hope not. It would be awkward if it did. And why not? Why shouldn't you be afraid of a cockroach? Because even if it startles you, even if it grosses you out a little bit, all you have to do is squash it, and it's no longer a threat to you. It's something that you know you can control so you don't experience the emotion of fear. Now, on the other hand, let's say a couple of thousand-pound grizzly bears that haven't eaten for a couple of months come through the doors. Now, in that moment, we evaluate the situation. Um, this is a circumstance I'm pretty sure I can't control, and I think it's going to do me harm. So we begin to experience the emotion of fear. But none of us, when we experience fear, just sit there and go, think I'm afraid right now. Do we? Fear never causes us to just sit there. Fear always causes us to move and to act. So, in those split seconds, we begin to make a decision. And the question that we're asking ourselves is this, and this is a very key question when you're afraid. Listen to this question. When I'm afraid and I think that there's something that's going to harm me and I can't control it, then the one question I'm asking myself is this, what do I perceive has the power to save me from the circumstance that I can't control and that will do me harm? What can save me? Some of you would rely on your quick feet and dart out the other door. Some of you would, you know, whip out your concealed weapon and find out how effective a pistol is against a grizzly bear, which would be kind of cool. Some of you would barricade yourselves behind tables and chairs. Some of you guys might go all Davy Crockett on the bear and whip out your Bowie knife and take it down. Uh, who knows? Maybe some of you might even trick the bear into eating the communion elements so that you can make your escape while he's you know, drinking the juice and the bread. I don't, I don't know. Whatever the case and whatever you choose in that moment, whether it's legitimate and real or silly, fear causes us to look for a savior. Fear immediately causes us to look for a savior. See, the Israelites heard the report from their leadership that this promised land that they'd heard so much about that was promised to them that it was all a big sham. It wasn't going to work out. The, their greatest fears had come to pass. They had spent the past year wandering through a barren wilderness, all to come here and find out, oh, sorry, can't do it. They had left the most prosperous nation in all the world, the most fertile land in all of the world, only to come out here and have their leadership tell them that it's not going to happen. And what did they do? Filled with their worst fears, they take matters into their own hands and they begin looking for another savior. Now, listen to me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't carry guns or Bowie knives, just in case grizzly bears may happen to barge into church services. But if that did happen... Would any of us have the courage, instead of pulling out our gun or instead of pulling out our knife, to drop down to our knees and pray to God for salvation? Wouldn't that be just a viable means of protection and deliverance as a gun or a knife or communion elements? I mean, it worked for Daniel in the lion's den. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm, to be perfectly honest, I'd probably be the one tricking the bears to eat the communion elements. But I'm trying to illustrate really two things. First, 
There are things like guns and knives that we would never think to call an idol, but can quickly become one if we put our hope in it instead of God. What we turn to for help in those quick moments reveals what we perceive has the power to truly save us, right? The second thing is that sometimes in our lives when we experience fear, it's just as easy, if not easier, to place our faith in things that are not God. Both of these points illustrate that the bottom line of this is that faith is easily misplaced, and sometimes we don't even notice when we misplace it. We think we're doing the right The nation of Israel didn't think they were making a mistake when their leaders said that they can't take the promised land. They thought that going back to Egypt was the best course of action. The second principle we need to learn this morning is that misplaced fear leads to misplaced worship. Once the nation of Israel was afraid of their circumstances more than their God, they sought to control their circumstances rather than believing in God's promises. They refused to risk their lives and possess the land and decided to stone their leadership and go back to Egypt. That will solve my problems. That will bring us comfort. That will quiet our fears, they thought. And here's the tricky thing. Sometimes taking matters into our own hands actually works. It takes away our fears. It makes us feel better. It makes us feel safe. Sometimes placing our faith in things other than God is more immediately satisfying than trusting in him. And if it's satisfying once, what do you think we'll do the next time we experience a similar fear? We'll choose it again and again and again. And there you have it. We've gone back to Egypt. And that's the story of the nation of Israel, isn't it? We continue to find the nation worshiping false gods, taking matters into their own hands throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible. The prophets call this idolatry and adultery. And they forecast the nation's imminent destruction because of her choice to place her faith in things that are not gods at all. And the same is true for us. When you follow your fears, you will find what you worship. I'm serious, you should do that. Follow your fears, and I'm telling you, you will find your saviors. And if they're not Jesus, then they're idols. Fear can lead us to idolatry just as quickly as it can lead us to Jesus. God has designed us to fear him, but if we place our fear in something other than him, we end up worshiping something that is not God at all. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. Now, I know we don't ever wake up in the morning and think to ourselves, gosh, I could use some more idols in my life today. That would be great. Maybe I have some at Walmart. I think they're on sale. No, we just get scared. We get frightened. We get caught unaware. And we make quick, godless decisions, and that's all it takes. We're ready to embrace a false savior. Now, number three, finally. Once our worship has been misplaced, our life will surely follow. The funniest part, or the saddest part, I guess, at the same time, of this story in Numbers 13 and 14, 
is that after God, you know, kind of takes them out behind the woodshed and tells them that they did a wrong thing and they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die there, all the way down in verse 40, look what the people say. Oh, okay, we're here. Okay, 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 here we are. We'll go up and we'll, we'll go to the place that the Lord has promised. We've sinned. Okay, we're ready to go conquer the land now. I bet you are. Okay. It shows us how fickle our fear can be, right? Now that the fear of the Lord's discipline is greater than being stuck in the wilderness and all these mighty enemies that are in the land, all of a sudden they're ready to go and fight. It's like my kids when I told them that they lose TV if they don't clean their room. They don't clean their room. And so when I tell them that they've actually lost television, all of a sudden, bam, I mean, their room is clean. And now they come back and saying, okay, can we watch Star Wars now? No, I don't think so. It's not, that's not how it works. And then, of course, when I tell them that I'm not going to cave and I actually meant what I said, then they pitch a fit and they get really mad at me. Get some rocks! Let's stone him. And in that moment, their heart is truly revealed. They don't care to honor or reverence or obey me. They just want to use me so that they can have what they want. And that's the core of what an idol, idol maker does. An idol maker crafts a God to worship so that he can have a God that does what he wants. And when we forsake the one true God for gods of our own making, we will surely die. And here's what I mean. When we tell the author of life that we know better than him, he will let us go and say, oh yeah? Think that's going to work out well for you? It's like this poster my parents had hanging up in the hallway of my house growing up. Did you have that picture? Yeah, this one. Teenagers, tired of being harassed by your parents? Act now. Move out, get a job while you still know everything. My parents, they put it right there between my sister's room and my room, right there in the middle, so I'd see it every time I went in my room. What do we know what happened to that teenager? He would make a wreck of his life. Even though he thinks he knows everything. Even though he thinks he has the solution to the problem. Even though he's gone and found new leadership. And sadly, that's what will happen to us when we place our hope in things that are not God's at all. So uh, to conclude, I asked the question at the beginning, what happens when we allow ourselves to be afraid of created things rather than the creator? What happens when we are more afraid of what we see than what we believe? What happens when we're more afraid of what people will say and do than what God has already said and done? Answer, we become idol worshipers. Full stop. Only our idols, they're not silver and gold. We're much more sophisticated these days. We know a statue can't do anything for us, but having power or influence over other people, amassing people who would love and respect us, attaining a certain level of wealth and financial freedom, being able to master our weaknesses, making sure people are dependent on us and need us all the time, gaining recognition and worth for our accomplishments. These are idols we are much more familiar with. Yeah? 
these are idols that many of us have turned to in those quick moments of fear and insecurity. We probably didn't even notice. Friends, Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave so that we can live our lives clamoring for more power, more approval, more comfort, or more control in our lives. And it's not why he died and rose again. Jesus is the author of life, the creator of all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If that is our God, and we are his people, then what have we to fear but him? His death and resurrection have secured for us a peace that indeed surpasses all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds from anything that could cause us to misplace our faith. He is the only one who has the power to truly save us from our circumstances because he is the only one who is in control of them. Why do we struggle for control when we know that he's the only one that has it? I pray that as we study this passage from Numbers 13, as we look at Mark 4 last week and as what we'll look at next week to conclude, that we will be found to be a believing people that believe the truth more than what our eyes may see or what our hearts may feel. That no matter what we may see or what we may do, we would remember the truth of who God is and who we are, and we would choose to put our faith in Him above anything else. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your scriptures this morning. They revealed to us even a story from the Old Testament from thousands of years ago, Father. It reveals to us things in our own life that we are turning to when we get afraid. Things that, caught, that distract us from remembering the truth of what you promised to us. Father, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't forget that in those quick moments when fear comes, when insecurity strikes, when, when shame rears its head in our lives, that we would, instead of trying to cover ourselves up with something like control or approval or power or comfort, that we would cover ourselves in the reality you have died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave to give us eternal life. You have poured out your spirit in our hearts that will conform us into your image and cause us to walk in your ways and do all the things you've planned before for us to walk in. I pray that that would be a tremendous encouragement to us, Father, and that would give us courage as we move forward. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.